Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Michael McQuaid, you've already met, but I didn't give much of an introduction to him. He is the Senior Vice President for Science and Technology at United Technologies Corporation, which is uh, very broadly um, involved in uh, technologies that relate to energy efficiency. Uh, he's had senior technology positions in at, at 3M, uh, Imation, and Eastman Kodak. Uh, and the last thing I'm, the only other thing I'm going to mention about him is that he's got a PhD in high energy physics in the area of hadronic charm quark production which delights me because it's perhaps uh, the only PhD here more arcane than my own, which was in uh, quantum reactive scattering theory. So, Michael, take it away. He really can't walk. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here, and I should say from the beginning, it's a real pleasure to be uh, associated with the Institute. So, um, I'm going to talk about uh, UTC and energy efficiency in buildings in particular and the opportunities that exist for us there both from a commercialization point of view but also from a fundamental research point of view so uh, let's sort of do a quick tour here uh, for those of you who don't know us um, you probably know the companies uh, we have a very deep aerospace business Pratt & Whitney, Sikorsky and Hamilton Sunstrand uh, so we make things go up and down we have a commercial building sector uh, which we think is either number one or close to number one in supplying infrastructure to the world's building industry. So Otis, Carrier, uh, our fire and security products, Chubb, Kide, et cetera. And it turns out that the commercial side of the house, which is less well known, is uh, substantially the larger portion of the company right now. So issues around energy efficiency, energy use, buildings, et cetera, matter to us an awful lot. Um, we have a three component sustainability strategy in the company. So. So if we're going to be in this side of the business and if we're going to be talking at places like this about things that matter, the first thing we have to do is convince ourselves that we're being good corporate citizens. So we have an operation side to our sustainability strategy, do more with less in the company. And just for sort of proof of point, the graphs on the bottom uh, represent energy use and water use in the company. I won't ask you to go through the sort of the details, but the graph on the left-hand side, which is uh, energy use in the company, between 1997 and 2008, the company grew by a factor of almost two and a half in terms of top line revenue and bottom line earnings. Um, and energy consumption, absolute, not energy consumption scaled to revenue, absolute energy consumption in the company went down 19%. So lots of, lots of, lots of internal programs, sort of blocking and tackling and some major, major shifts in how we do production in the company. You can see similar on water, water consumption down almost 50% in the company. So, so the first part of the strategy is do good for the company itself and use that as a proof point. The second part of the strategy is energy efficient products. Um, so our objective is to deliver in every new and new generation of products to our customers significant and substantial energy savings. Gen 2 elevators, which are elevators that among other things are regenerative. They capture energy and store it on the downswing and use that electrical energy to then power either the elevator or return it to the building grid. Those elevators consume 75% less energy than comparable non-regenerative elevators. 
On the bottom right-hand side is a new family of engines that we're in the process of commercializing, uh, something called the gear turbofan, where the front fan is actually geared off of the mainline turbine, allows you to run the fan much slower than the turbine, optimizing both of those. That engine, in a normal, in a normal evolution of jet engine families, you look for sort of 1% or 2% uh, specific fuel consumption efficiency improvement. That engine's going to deliver about 12% more efficient uh, fuel utilization while also being 20 dB quieter and 50% less NOx emissions, so delivering to our customers environmental value. Combined heat and power systems that take uh, waste heat from prime movers, whether those are reciprocating engines or microturbines of one kind or another, and use that waste energy, taking what would be a sort of 35% electrical efficient object and turning it into a 85 or 90% total efficient object if you can use the waste heat or use the heat to drive uh, an absorption chiller and generate cooling. And then at the top, top side, that's a Rankin cycle uh, engine. Uh, essentially, it's a chiller, carrier chiller compressor system run in reverse with a bicomponent organic solvent that uses very low temperature geothermal sources. This is about 180 or 190 degree Fahrenheit water that's used to deliver. Uh, it's very inefficient. It's only about 8% efficient. On the other hand, it's using essentially a free resource at very low temperature water. So strategy number one, reduce the energy in the company. Strategy number two, products. And strategy number three, which is really where I want to go, is advocacy. So we are one of the two chairs of the Zero Net Energy or Energy Efficiency in Building program from the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. You can see the companies on the bottom. Essentially, a roadmap from the commercial sector in delivering zero net energy buildings. Uh, a three-year program, year one, was essentially a study of factors that influence energy efficient deployment in the marketplace, a survey of building managers, building owners, construction companies, those who have a vested interest in the industry. That led to a report called the Facts and Trends Report that, among other things, indicated that amongst the people in the industry, we tend to overestimate the cost of moderate energy efficiency solutions in commercial buildings by a factor of four to five and we underestimate the energy efficiency which can be achieved by a factor of three to four. So substantial knowledge that needs to be generated there. The middle section, which is where I'll go today, was, is a very comprehensive uh, model-based, data-driven model-based assessment of uh, trends and actions that can be taken to achieve uh, significant energy reduction in buildings, uh, both new buildings and retrofit buildings. And then the third section where we're going into now really relates to issues around how the companies will come together to initiate change first among themselves and then in the marketplace. <clears throat> so in this modeling structure that, that we have just rolled out the first round of results for, essentially it's a, it's a complicated forward-based model that starts with inputs that include possible changes that can be made. Those can be construction options, those the things like new lights, LED lighting, new cladding materials on buildings, so all the sort of the technical product changes that can be added in, series of decision variables and what we call exogenous variables related, what's the economy going to do, what's government policy going to do, uh, and then we couple in broader term strategies in the industry. Those go into a set of calculations that are based on uh, a stock of buildings that represent a substantial portion of the building stock in both the United States and around the world. I'll give you a little more detail on that in a second. We do uh, sort of eQuest level simulation of energy flow in buildings. We look at diffusion models for how technology can move over the next 40 to 50 years. We look at the economic models, the projected cost models. 
And out of that comes a series of analysis that says, for a set of choices, here is the consequence in terms of energy consumption in buildings and consequent CO2 emission from those buildings. It's a financially driven model, so we look at the cost to achieve either at the individual cost or at the societal cost level. So those of you who want to follow this chart here a little bit more detail, I think I'll skip over this, but it's basically a flow map of what's going on in the calculation. We start, the initial results that I'll talk about today were based on six sub-markets that are used as proxies for the building industry. So six different sub-markets, residential markets, for example, in the U.S. Southeast single family. We use both representative uh, properties and uh, the, the complete database of properties that exists in these. So there's about 60 million properties that are generated and analyzed as part of what goes on here. It's about 130 billion square meters of floor space. And then we project these six up to the total building stock, either in the United States or, or across the world. And to give you a kind of a sample of some of the results that we get out, just give me a second to walk through. So, so this is single family homes in the US. The top blue line is the baseline CO2 between 2005 and 2050. Essentially, this is the business as usual model. We don't do anything different than we are doing now. And it tells you that CO2 emission over here is going to go from about 60, uh, 60 gigatons up to, uh, up to something in the range of 97 or 98. Um, and then this analysis is a particular run of the model that says we use the kind of subsystem incentives that are in place today. So the incentives that are in place for installing energy efficient um, appliances, the incentives that are in place now for uh, envelope expansion. So this is sort of the, the business as usual with today's incentives laid on top of it. And further then, we condition this run to say we're only going to accept those set of options. And there's over 600 options allowed in the model here. We're only going to allow those options that have a five-year return, five-year simple return, and have certain first cost limits that are sort of manageable by an individual. In this case, it's something in the range of you don't allow anything that costs more than 30% of the, of the value of the home. And this model then with today's incentives says essentially not much happens. Okay, so with the incentives we have in place today and asking for a five-year return, not much happens. Conversely, this is a particular run in the model, same building stock, same five-year return, same first cost limits, where we apply a regulatory scheme on top. And this is a relatively simple regulatory scheme, which is basically a whole building scheme. Rather than incent appliances to be more efficient, rather than to incent people to install PV on the roof, we say we deregulate or, or disallow the lowest one-fourth of the building stock to be built. In other words, the buildings which would be the least energy efficient, the lower quartile, become illegal, if you will, in this regulatory environment. And we incent the first cost hurdle on the most efficient buildings. Running that run on this set of buildings, you can see we get a 70% reduction in baseline CO2 over the period from 2005 to 2050. This is just another example. This is essentially the same building stock. The difference here is if I say I'm going to allow uh, additional incentives to remove the financing hurdle to allow me to go from a five-year NPV to a 20-year NPV. So 20-year NPV is not going to happen over, based on generally individual choice. 
if I provide financing to get over the hurdle to allow me to accept a 20-year NPV. You see, it's not as good as the regulatory side, but I get about a 30% reduction in CO2. So we look at all of those submarkets. We look at all of these kind of analysis. Uh, and sort of here's the summary result that comes out of that. This is the six regions around the world. This is total energy savings on this, uh, I'm sorry, total CO2 savings on this axis, total incremental investment on this axis. So the way you read this chart is you say, if I allow all of those options, which are justifiable based on a five-year return, it costs sort of order of magnitude on, over on this side, I'm sorry, on this side of the equation, about $200 billion annually, which used to sound like a big number and doesn't necessarily now. That's not an absolute cost, that's a cash outlay cost. The return on that is five-year payback for that $200 billion a year investment, and it equates to a 40% reduction in CO2 by 2050 from the building stock in these six regions. If I expand my horizon to a 10-year payback, it essentially doubles the cost on an annual basis, changes the return from 40 to a little bit over 50%. And then if I want to get to the full 70 to 80% that's needed by the uh, IPCC numbers, the sort, of, uh, the sort of CO2 reduction numbers we talked about today, you can see that the cost goes up dramatically because we're on the sort of marginal basis of what can be accomplished economically here. If I take a look at it at the U.S. only, the more relevant numbers for today's discussion, in the U.S., in the building stock we talked about, those options that deliver a five-year payback and roughly a 40% reduction in CO2 will cost us about $30 billion a year. Those options that go for 10 years will be about $60 billion a year, and the total cost is about $190 billion a year to deliver 80% energy efficiency for us. And then the point I made earlier today, uh, if we look at sort of what the percentage of this cost is, uh, all in this sort of $200 billion a year, ends up being about 13% cost premium on the total expenditure we have on buildings today in the U.S. It's about a trillion and a half dollars annually. Only about 3% of that is not covered by 20-year payback in the model. So again, for about $60 billion a year, we can reduce carbon emissions by 50% with technologies and regulatory policy that are justified on a 10-year payback for us. Uh, and to put that in scale, as I said earlier today, sort of this is building fire safety regulations. It's about a 4 to 5% first cost premium in the building industry in the U.S. And, uh, and some additional study that says in the automotive sector, auto safety regulations add about 2% to the first cost of automobiles in the United States. So. Okay, so the recommendations that come out of the World Business Council, uh, how do we get there? So create and enforce building efficiency codes and labeling standards. We, should, we need to know what our buildings do. We need to not only know what our buildings were designed to do, but what they actually do. Incentivize the energy efficient investments, as I talked about earlier. Incentivize those investments that do have a five and 10 year return. Encourage integrated design approaches and innovative, innovative technology. I'll talk about that in just a second energy savings technology development programs. Uh, there's a workforce capacity issue. In the U.S., that sort of first, that first 40% that I talked about implies the creation of about 2 million jobs to be able to deploy those solutions in the United States. 
and then mobilize for an energy-aware culture. This is the education process, this is the human behavior process that we've talked about often on the last couple of days. We do have examples of buildings that work. These are highly efficient buildings, uh, sort of getting to the 10 to 30 percent reduction by sort of new components. This is a building in Chicago, it was a retrofit of the uh, city front Sheraton. Uh, it's about a 300 kilowatt hour per meter squared building, essentially accomplishing that sort of 10 to 30 percent reduction through improved products. Lead design standards is a different building in, in uh, Tulane. Uh, lead design standards and new modified technologies and substantially increase, increased control mechanisms. As designed, this is a 20 to 50 percent reduction building. And then we have these sort of emerging very low energy buildings, sort of greater than 50 percent reduction, where we're using very novel techniques. This is a building essentially that, that is 75 kilowatt hours per square meter. It's obviously in a reasonably benign summer culture. Uh, needs a fair amount of heat in the, in the daytime, but no fans, no ducts. This is a triple clad building that relies on substantial wind flow and pressure measurements to drive airflow in the building. So it's got radiant cooling systems associated with it, but it's essentially a passive airflow building. So to get to these kind of very large instantiated buildings, like the study from the EEB says, I've got new buildings, new equipment, new kinds of materials, and also a significant increase in the integration and subsystem. The challenge is, and we've heard about this off and on during the day, all of these studies on what's a five-year return, what works, all the things we've talked about, ultimately have a problem in that they assume that when I make a change to a building, it sticks. And we have ample evidence that in many of these highly efficient building programs, the as-designed, as-implemented building turns out to be very different. And I think many of you have seen these studies before. This is the, uh, the Zion Visitor Center that we talked about. Somebody had this in one of their presentations earlier. This was uh, the design intent here was an 80% reduction over ASHRAE. It's currently measured as built at about 67% and falling. Um, this is the uh, Cambria office building. This was a 66% improvement measured out the door at 44%. Generally, we get failure modes because the buildings as built are not built the same as designed and because we have substantial interactions between, between the subsystems in the building. So the buildings that were designed for significantly strong thermal envelopes that have been then decoupled or coupled inappropriately to indoor equipment, to different walls created indoors in the building, and the buildings end up being uh, substantially different than, than, uh, than as designed. And it leads, to, uh, it leads to what we believe is a very important research effort uh, that needs to be done. We're doing work here at, at Santa Barbara. We're doing work at... Berkeley, and we're looking at significant programs associated with LBNL and the Department of Energy in how we create the science and tools for modeling buildings correctly, deployable, scalable models, then taking those models and translating those into control architectures and process architectures that can be used for buildings to be built. We looked at the losses that occur between sort of an average building that was designed to be a 50% improvement over ASHRAE 91. Uh, about 50% of the loss comes from the inability to fully explore the design space with adequate computational tools to create the kind of building that should be created in the first place. About 30% of the design comes in this euphemistically known as value engineering term, which is, I had a building, it had highly efficient windows, and at the last minute those windows were delayed, and because the project didn't want to get delayed, I put in windows that were less efficient. The building doesn't get built exactly as defined. 
And then about 20% of the loss comes because the control mechanisms in particular are not implemented in an adequate fashion or as designed in the building. I think we'll skip through this one. So, so the commercialization imperative for us to get to these highly efficient buildings really depends on solving some of these key barriers. Lack of process and tools for systems analysis. We can take an individual building and by brute force and high touch, high effort, we can analyze that building and we can convert that into a, a process schema for building the building and a control schema that requires a lot of care and feeding and a lot of attention and a lot of expertise. The, the issue and the challenge is how do we create the tools that are scalable so that all buildings can be approached with the technology, all buildings can be essentially continuously commissioned as the buildings are made and, and, uh, and operated. So we need computational science, physics-based modeling tools, new methodologies for integrative design, uh, lack of ability to demonstrate the technology maturation. So we are working to put in place full-scale demonstration facilities at government buildings, at commercial buildings, at academic institutions to be able to not only demonstrate the capability but to understand the, the strengths and weaknesses of the various technology approaches. Uh, lack of tools for ongoing auditing and monitoring buildings. So remember one of the EB, EB topics was how do we create uh, a structure that requires buildings to be labeled, audited, and analyzed. We also need to then develop the tools that allow that to happen in a low-cost, continuous fashion that allows us to understand why buildings are, are functioning the way they are and what we need to do about that from the controls point of view. And then finally, there's the long-term research that's needed, not only to create the technology base, but to create the academic infrastructure, the, uh, the uh, next generation of students who need to come up through the industry to create the pre-collaborative, pre-competitive collaboration that's needed to create the kind of intelligence and kind of knowledge base that we need uh, to create the energy efficient buildings of the future. So let me stop there and I think we'll have time to come back for questions after, the, uh, after my two colleagues go ahead. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. I met uh, PK Capadia uh, last December, I think, at a, uh, an energy efficiency meeting in Washington um, when we were just starting to uh, really think about and put together this, uh, this meeting. And as I heard him on a panel and how well he, how articulately he expressed his really broad knowledge base of this subject area, I knew that uh, I had to try to, to get him uh, for this, uh, this event. So I'm delighted that you're here, PK. PK is Director of, of uh, Business Development at Lime Energy, which provides energy efficiency solutions to private companies as well as public institutions. And very impressively, Lime has implemented uh, energy efficiency uh, measures at over 400 million square feet of building space. So you've got uh, someone who knows what's going on on the ground here, and uh, I'm eager to hear what he has to say. Hello. Can you hear me? Thank you for that great introduction. Um, I've been doing this for 30 years. I'm tired. I've been saying the same thing for 30 years. I've been talking to people, clients, people like you. And even though it's our time to shine, everyone's paying attention to energy, 
it seems like I always come back to the same thing, do the obvious. So I'm going to spend some time today talking about the obvious. Some of it may have been discussed over the last day, but I'm going to put a different spin on it by giving you exact uh, examples, uh, maybe some case studies of what worked and what didn't. So while we talk about all these emerging technologies uh, and all these wonderful things that are out there that are so close that we can almost touch it, I'm going to tell you what we did in the last five years and what we need to do in the next five uh, to take full advantage. So my company, Lime Energy, were publicly traded. Uh, three years ago, we were less than 50 people in the company. Today, we're over 400. Uh, the, uh, the energy crisis has been very good to us. Uh, we continue to grow, and uh, I hope to be recruiting engineers from this college this fall. Um, it's, it's a great time to be in this business. Uh, we have offices in 15 cities all over the country, uh, each one with a dedicated staff of uh, professional engineers and certified lighting um, efficiency professionals and energy managers doing nothing but finding opportunities to save energy for our clients. Our clients are largely Fortune 500 companies, um, some towns, uh, hospitals, schools, um, small governments, um, a lot of US uh, uh, government work uh, with uh, the ESPC program. So we're, we find ourselves in, in every aspect of the energy business. So what I'm going to talk about today are the four energy efficiency technologies that will transform the industry in the next five years. And before you get all excited and say, this is the next silver bullet, I'm going to bring you down a notch and say, you've probably heard of these, and you're probably sick and tired of hearing of them. But the spin I'm going to give you is the applications of that technology to today's uh, environment. Um, some, some very um, brief um, uh, observations. Uh, we've lived in a supply-side society for 40 years, and now we find ourselves in a demand-side environment. I don't mean just in terms of you need more energy, we'll make more, but also a supply-side, and you need more energy conservation, we'll make more product. Uh, we've had a, a proliferation of products, both made here and, and abroad and in China, that we feel like we've got so much stuff out there uh, that all we need to do is keep getting more and more and more stuff. And, and my message to you is more is not necessarily better that we have to stop living on the supply side. We have to see what's been developed over the last five or 10 years and use it and apply it well. Of course, we know that there's no time for the two extremes. Drill, baby, drill is no longer something that, that people believe in. But equally as dangerous is uh, people saying that we're looking for that one or two things that are going to bring us back to where we belong. There is no such thing. I've been doing this for 30 years. And if there was, I'd be sipping a pina colada in the Grand Cayman Islands. And I'm here. OK, so the other thing that, that, that is really important is that over the last four or five years, people have been saying sustainability, sustainability, sustainability. And I was caught up in that for a while until I realized that all these clients of mine, I'm talking about Fortune 100 companies, were basically speaking the mantra that other people had sort of told them. You know, it's sustainable. You have to have uh, you know, low VOC carpets. You have to ride your bicycle to work instead of, those are all great. But sensible sustainability is what's going to last. Sustainability has taken a huge hit with the financial crisis we've had. And I don't have my top 100 clients saying, you know that, that, that uh, waste recovery system that we were thinking of with a 12-year payback? Let's reactivate that. Now they're looking for two-year paybacks again. So what I want to do is blend sustainability with energy conservation to where it becomes sensible. And I'll define what that is as we go along. So applying the innovations for the last 10 years um, and, 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 and making the application to cost-effective uh, cost solutions, to me, is 
the short-term goal to get out of this energy crisis. Um, I have a wonderful colleague here uh, from Southern California, Edison, who's going to talk about incentives. But we really need the incentives. We talked a lot earlier today about whether incentives are a fake way of propping up um, energy efficiency. And my answer is, no, it's not. We, we've been working with energy incentives, I have personally, for the last 25 years. And the first thing it does is it tells my client, look, whatever I'm telling you is backed up by the utility, and in many cases, backed up by the state. Whenever I submit a formula to a, a utility saying, here's the money we were going to get because of this energy efficient technology, it's another stamp by someone saying, yes, we agree to these formulas. Yes, we agree to these calculations, to these savings estimates, and to the measurement and verification that goes with it. So to my clients, there's a, there's a wonderful um, um, support provided by the utilities and the states when they say, we believe in this project well enough to offer a 20% incentive to buying down the cost. So I think it's a very valuable part of it, not to mention the fact that everyone likes free money. And besides, if you're paying into the system's benefits charge, it's your money. So a lot of times I tell my clients, if you're not taking advantage of the utility rebates, you're throwing away money. Um, so the other thing is energy efficiency is a mature and growing industry. We know that, that this time has been long in coming. And now it's finally here, and I should be dancing here. I've been doing this for so long that I forget to realize that now is our time, that we've got 400 professionals out there that are nerds, and we love nerds. We love people who can look at a problem, apply a solution, make sure it, 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 it gets done, verify the savings, and move on to the next project. So don't, um, misunder, don't, don't underestimate the, the value of good engineers who've been doing this thing at, at United Technologies and everywhere else in, in, in the country for decades. We've got this thing down pat. OK. so. No drum roll, because it's not really exciting, but I'll show you how exciting it can be. The technology is old. The applications are not. LED lighting will replace fluorescent, HID, and, and CFL bulbs for indoor and outdoor use. We've talked about this yesterday. We talked about it briefly today. I'll show you how it's being done and what are good examples and what are bad. Uh, Web-based controls will shut off loads and reset the temperature set points and schedules remotely. That's already happening, but I'll show you how it makes a huge difference in our field. Electricity will be stored and resold to utilities or used during peak periods. We talked about that. We're already doing it. We're getting utilities to pay for it. It's wonderful. Uh, and the human brain will finally catch up with energy efficiency technology. That's the one big thing that we have lacking, is that we have all this technology. The human brain hasn't caught up with the technology. How many people have a? Uh, you know, a, a, a TiVo system that they use fully or, or, or have an iPhone that they have 100 applications on that they understand. I don't. Uh, so the human brain has to catch up with that technology. OK, so I don't want to spend too much time on this. We know about LEDs. It's great. Uh, they operate well in cold temperatures, instant on, variable dimming. You all know that. What is the application? And, and these are real, you know, real uh, uh, life uh, examples. We have a client. Um, with warehouses in the Bronx, uh, New York. And they want to be energy efficient, they want to save on maintenance, and they want to save on theft. Okay, I need to combine all three of those needs to give them something that they will find valuable and have a payback. This is a, a product made by GE. It's an LED pole light. 
It uses about 200 watts to replace a 460-watt uh, metal halide. And it does all that. It, it, it saves um, energy. It allows me to, um, to design the layout of, of the parking lot or the area where, where the trucks come in to the exact specifications of the foot candles required by um, the security uh, cameras and, and, and the security uh, protocol. Um, each LED can be pointed like the eye of a chameleon so that you have a, a uniform 1.5 foot candle uh, reading throughout the space instead of having a spotlight and then it being dark in spots. Average foot candles meet in very little if you have 20 foot candles here and it's dark before it becomes 20 again because the theft will happen in the dark areas, the muggings, the rapes, and all that. And in, in the Bronx, the biggest concern for this particular client was make sure that people don't come in and steal stuff from our trucks. So make sure it's uniform, our, 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 our cameras can actually look at people and, and they don't look like uh, ghosts. Uh, the other thing that was very important to them was the replacement of the bulb. Each one of these spikes represents the cycle of a metal halide bulb every 12,000 hours. So here's a metal halide bulb and it's been replaced here at 12,000 hours. It goes back up to full brightness. By the end of its life, it's lost another 30% of its brightness. It gets replaced here, and so on and so forth. And this is the LED system. So over the course of 50,000 hours, you haven't replaced it once, whereas you would have replaced the metal halide bulb five times, maybe more, and lost 30% of the light each time that it dipped down to close to its, uh, useful, uh, the end of its useful life. Why is this important? Well, again, you're talking about sustainability. You're talking about how many bulbs are going to end up in uh, a recycling bin or, or, an, or in a landfill, um, and the cost of maintenance. This, this client happens to be a union client, and it's gonna, he's going to pay 120 bucks for a guy in a truck to go up uh, on a bucket and to replace a bulb during off hours. So the second, the second thing was, was maintenance costs, and the third was what can we do with, with this technology that allows us to meet our own internal rate of return hurdle rate? their hurdle rate happened to be 15.5% internal rate of return. And in order for that third thing to happen, we needed to get incentives. So we went to the utilities and we went to NYSERDA, which is the, the agency that, that collects all your systems benefits charge, and we petitioned to them. We said, we know that this is not part of your pr prescriptive list, that you're not gonna give us money for technology that first of all doesn't say peak demand, and second of all, it's so new that you don't have it on, on, on your list. Can you please include that? And they did. You take the incentives, you take the maintenance savings, you take the energy savings, we're able to satisfy the client's requirement and the first set of these is going into installation in, in the next month. So when people say, well, the technology is there, but the price point is high, in some cases, when you apply yourself properly and you get all the various uh, components in there and you can put dollar value to that and have it buy, uh, bought down, that day is today. So. LED lighting for outdoor lighting, well, maybe not in Topeka, Kansas. I'm sorry if I'm not, if someone's here from Topeka. Your cost of electricity is four cents. Uh, but anywhere along the East Coast, anywhere along the West Coast, you're going to get a payback that'll meet most people's internal rate of return. The second one is this. Now you look at, this is a, a, a nine watt, you can also get it in six watt. It's a, it's a task lamp and it uses LED. I have one in my house. How much do you think this costs? Give me an idea. 30 bucks, $100, it's 160, okay, $160 for a six watt or a nine watt LED lamp, and you're saying there's no way it's gonna pay for itself, right? I'm gonna prove you wrong, 
we have a client, Midtown Manhattan. They just moved into 300,000 square feet of Madison Avenue space, and the requirement was make sure your watts per square foot were below 1.1 or whatever the, the latest, I think it's 1.1 watts per square foot. And there are many ways they could do it. What they chose to do is to take all the ambient light and drop it down to 25-foot candles. So wherever they were going to occupy space, all the light was going to be just a, a nice even glow of light, but not enough to read under. And they took all the existing task lighting out, whether it was incandescent or fluorescent or whatever, and they gave each person on a desk one of these. Okay. Again, I went to NYSERDA and I said, look, I have a client who's doing something unique. Yeah, someone can take that table lamp and walk away and take it home and, 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 and steal it, but chances are they're not because it's going to be missing the next day and then they're, going to be able to, they're not going to be able to read with 20-foot candles. Allow us to get a, an incentive on this so we can buy down that cost from 160 bucks down to 120 bucks. And if you do the calculation, if you take an entire cube of space, 300,000 square feet, and you're reducing hundreds of kilowatts in the ceiling and replacing them with these lamps, it pays for itself. The payback is 2.2 years for this. So the, the technology is here now. It's a matter of applying the technology, finding a better solution, and then forcing people to use it. This is a fantastic product. I have one at home. Um, the, 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 what it's replacing is 37 watt MR16 lamps that last 3,000 hours. This one lasts 50,000 hours. It's color corrected. It's 3,500 degrees Kelvin. It's wonderful to work under. It gives you 90 foot candles at 18 inches above the desk. It's just a fantastic product. And I think a lot of people in California are using this product because it's made here and a lot of it is mandated. So don't think of something as being so expensive that it doesn't pay. Think outside the box and find a way to bring the payback down by finding a, a, a broader solution. Um, someone mentioned that these, uh, these are MR16 LED lights. So they plug into a, a halogen type socket, a, a bipin socket. Someone mentioned they cost 80 bucks. I'll sell them to you for 50. Nah, I'll sell them to you for 40. 30, my final offer, 30. Really, I'm buying these things for 19 bucks in, 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 in the thousands. And we have clients that are lining up to buy them. The, the price point is coming down exponentially as these things are being produced. And what's driving this whole thing is a proper application of it. If you, if you don't apply it right, it's not going to pay. If you're applying it for a hi-hat that's lit for five hours a day, it's never going to pay. You put it in an elevator where it has to be lit 24-7, the payback is a year. So if you apply these products to the right, the appropriate uh, client, there's no question that they would pay. We have a, a purveyor of coffee that is in almost every street corner in this country. I can't name the name. Um, but they make really good coffee. And, and they have a lot of halogen lights because they want their display cases to look just right and they want a real nice, cozy atmosphere so that people can sit on a couch and feel really good about it. And their question was, how can we justify this 19, well, 19 plus markup? Um, how can we justify this product when we're replacing compact fluorescents that are only using 11 watts? And the answer is, look at the bigger picture. You're running 18, 19 hours a day. Look at the waste. Look at the mercury. In, in the compact fluorescent. Look at all these things. What, is, what, are you trying, what image are you trying to show your customers? That you're going to replace a lamp every year and a half that has mercury in it, or that you're going to put one of these in? How much value are you going to get? 
if you, if you put these in and you don't have to change them for 10 years. So it's a matter of you know, teaching them and then also going to the large manufacturers, the GEs and so on and so forth, and saying, hey, this is a very large coffee purveyor with 6,000 stores and 90,000 lamp order. What, what are you willing to give? And you'll find that that is driving the price down for everyone else. This is not a good idea. We talked about um, LEDs being really good because it's a very, very small and powerful source of light, and it really shoots that light down. What, what this company wants to do is replace the, the lay-in two-by-fours by, by replacing a fluorescent lamp with LEDs. But what are you doing here? You're basically putting dozens of LEDs so that they diffuse the light with, a, with an acrylic diffuser or, or whatever, so you get a nice even glow. Not a, good, uh, not a good concept. So not everything that you see that's coming out there is necessarily uh, a good application. When you find a good application, it makes sense. This thing, these fixtures cost 400 bucks, and I, I just can't get a payback out of it. The next technology is web-enabled controls. And a little disclaimer here, this product, the EMAC product, is a, is a product that we make. It's a um, wireless controller, but one of the biggest opportunities that we see uh, that is not addressed right now is in the small commercial sector. You've got, uh, I think the, uh, the commissioner for the CPUC said that was one of their bold moves to try and get small uh, commercial HVAC systems running more efficiently. Um, for large buildings, you can go to Carrier and they'll sell you a wonderful energy management system that'll take care of all the temperature and all the fans and so on and so forth. You get it some, uh, into a building where um, you have a five-ton rooftop unit or a 10-ton rooftop unit, and you'll find on the wall a round thermostat that people always, too hot, too cold, too hot, too cold. You don't know whether it's working and so on and so forth. So what, what I see a huge opportunity in is all these retail spaces, all these small commercial spaces should have something like this, or, or, or better still, something like this combined with this. You're basically getting all the information on your laptop, whether you're in your office or at home, or at the site. You know that you can program it. A thermostat doesn't know it's Martin Luther King Day on, on, on January 12th. It doesn't know that. So it says it's a Monday, and it goes into its normal operations of occupied mode when, in fact, that space could be off. Well, you can program this for all the holidays, all the late night meetings, all the emergency, uh, you know, uh, presidents coming lower down the temperature kind of stuff. You can change the schedules remotely. You can optimize the management. You can, you can combine it with the weather reports so that you know that on a Monday morning after a heat wave, you have to pre-cool or pre-heat the building. Uh, you can have the system monitoring and reporting alarms to, uh, you know, off-site. So you can have one person sitting at a desk, and we do in San Diego, and each person is responsible for 700 of these, and he sees all these alarms come in, and he decides whether it's a real alarm or a fake one. If it's a real alarm that, that involves either uh, equipment failure or, or an emergency or whatever, he can dispatch someone to fix it. But more importantly, if it's not a real alarm, if, if it's 78 degrees and, and the set point is 79, he can say, I'm not going to worry about it. And if someone calls and said, hey, I'm too hot or too cold, he's going to say, no, you're not. You're within the company-mandated temperature guidelines of your space. Please don't complain. And, 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 and they, sometimes they need to know that, and sometimes we need to send them a stream of 30 days worth of hourly temperature data to show exactly that it's within the range that if they have a problem, they got to take it up with their boss, not with the HVAC company. So in many ways, our company, or, or these companies that do this, help define what energy conservation is by saying, it's not an emergency because you didn't wear a sweater, or it's not an emergency because it's so hot outside that you expect it to be so cold inside, everything's fine. 
But most importantly, if you can imagine the, the concept of demand response, we have 3,000 of these all over the country. We had 700 of them in a very large bank in New York. Uh, and Mayor Bloomberg called us two years ago during a heat wave. He called all the business uh, uh, leaders in, in, the in the energy business and said, we're going to have a brownout if we don't drop a couple of megawatts worth of power on Monday morning. What can you do? Our guy in San Diego got the message. He sat in, in, on, on his console, and he basically reset all the temperature set points so that no two compressors were cycling together in the same building. So basically, he reduced the load in half with about 10 minutes worth of changes on the, on, on the, uh, on, on the computer, and he saved 400 kilowatts for, for New York City in that day. It didn't cost anyone anything. Uh, we're working with uh, Southern California Edison. We're working with NYSERDA to try and get demand response money. We have uh, hundreds of banks or hundreds of uh, retail um, clients that are looking to, uh, to save money on demand response and to get incentives from the utility. We can do that remotely. So to me, this is a very underutilized technology. And the technology is old. The application is new. The situation's demand response is very new. So if we keep applying them, there's going to be a payback. Typically, the payback for these items is about a year. It's that good. The third one that I want to talk about is um, energy storage. This happens to be a, a new product. This is one KW, and you can buy them in KW chunks. You can buy 100. You can buy 500. And basically, what you're doing with, with uh, uh, electric storage is using that technology and applying it for the best bang you can get for the buck. In, in the case of New York and California, it's demand response. It's taking care of load shedding. It's taking care of time of day rates. You've got something that, um, let's say you're a large user and you're paying uh, you know, 15 cents per kilowatt hour for peak, uh, for peak KWH and 9 cents per KWH for off-peak. Well, guess what? You can buy it from the utility at 9 cents and sell it at 15 or use, the, use it when it's 15. So you're, not, so you're saving six cents just on shifting what you can do. And again, the question is, is this cost effective? Does it pay? And the answer is yes. If you take advantage of demand response, load shedding, peak shaving, time of use rates, you combine all those things, the payback for this is two and a half years. And it's available today. Basically, the utilities want you to, to drop load here so they can sell it to someone else. And Typically, a, uh, you know, if, you, if you could take this peak and fill the two values, that's what the, uh, the, the, the system does. You can also go into off-grid applications if you, if you don't want to be on the grid, if you, if you have um, a lighting pole that you need to have. Smart grid, you know, you're talking about saving one or two kW worth of storage on a pole so that you can use it when needed, and the utilities would love this. You have it on the pole when you need it in a, in a particular load uh, restricted area, you've got an extra KW per box. Uh, the, uh, the power store per month is, is so good, the, the, it reduces, uh, it not reduces, it, it loses its charge at a very, very slow rate, 0.1% per month. And of course, it can be used uh, as backup power for UPS systems and so on and so forth. You, you get rid of all those uh, lead batteries, and, and it's a lot, uh, lot cleaner. Uh, you can imagine all the, all, the, all the applications for this, so I won't go into it, but basically you could, you, could, you could be charging your car, you could be using solar to store the energy, you could be discharging at the right time, you could make your home or your, or your office totally um, independent of, of the ups and downs. And of course, something like this, this is uh, 
440 pounds uh, worth about 40 uh, kWh. Um, and this is the old system, which is lead acid at 8,300. But just, you know, these are things that are out there. They're, you can use them today, and, and they work. Um, the, number one, the number four thing is the human brain. Now, let's take all the technology we've talked about over the last two days and just put it aside and think of all the human power, the brain power that we have, not in seventh graders, that's 10 years away, but in us today, in the operations people, in, in, the, in the buildings engineering people, in, in the people who are involved with utility programs, there's a huge amount of brain power that I don't think is being utilized fully. And I think that if we give them a chance to apply all the technology that's out there, to bring it up to where every single technology is working at, 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 its, at its fullest, we'll easily see a 10 to 15% increase in, in efficiency. So the few things that I want to talk about is using their building automation systems to their fullest to track and analyze operation. We have a program called e-commissioning, energy commissioning, recommissioning. We basically go into buildings to make sure that everything is running right. We trend logs. We basically take uh, temperatures and humidities and, and, and start-stop schedules, make sure everything's running right. We tweak it. Typically, the payback for that is three months because you're not adding any equipment. Um, Matching real-time utility rates with road shedding equipment. You can do that with the building automation system. You can do that with storage. Purchasing weather derivatives, adding the tasks to existing jobs to, uh, to ensure job security. I get a lot of people calling me up saying, can you find me a job? And my first question is, if you're an energy engineer, what are you doing so wrong that you need to ask me for a job? You're in the prime of your life. You should be asking for a raise, not for a job. And the answer is, I'm not doing, my boss isn't happy because I'm not getting that 5% reduction in savings, and I'm tired of, of, of pleasing him. And my answer is no, then I won't hire you. You should be doing such a great job in your building that you should be worth your weight in gold. Um, cutting edge technology is always more expensive than the creative application of existing technology. Technology will always be ahead of us. I don't care what other people say. I've been doing this for 30 years. It's always going to be there, and we're always going to be slightly behind the technology. Until we find the right people that can apply that technology, we'll always be chasing our tails. I think that if we just did what we did, we'd be fine. I see that my time is up, so I thank you. Thanks, PK. We have such a uh, wealth of real-world experience in energy efficiency applications. We're really blessed. And the next is uh, the utility perspective. Nancy Jenkins is the manager for the, elect, uh, the Energy Efficiency Partnership Program for Southern California Edison. Uh, she manages partnerships with more than 100 cities, uh, funding more than $100 million in projects. Uh, previously, she was with the California Energy Commission, manager of the peer program for energy efficiency. Uh, she's an engineer with more than 20 years' experience in energy efficiency. So welcome, Nancy. Thank you. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, so you've heard a lot yesterday, today, about technology, innovation, research, programs, utilities, incentives, 
Where does it all converge? Does anybody know what each other is doing? How do each of these efforts touch each other? And how do they progress from point A to point B to actually being somewhere where the customer can touch and feel where, what you started with in the laboratory? So what, what I'd like to talk to you about today is um, sharing with you some of the insights from a public purpose program perspective. So from the time a technology is even conceived to the time it actually touches the customer, what's the public purpose program stream that it can and should touch to have the greatest likelihood of success of actually reaching a customer's hands? So I'm going to start with talking about a couple of the pieces of enabling legislation that were really instrumental in the most recent years for getting us to where we are with energy efficiency. And then share with you what we consider to be the theoretical technology diffusion curve, where we think that, how we think this should work, and really how it works sometimes, um, but in reality, probably doesn't work exactly that way. The different public purpose programs in California in particular, and how they touch each other um, along that stream, and I'm going to go through, um, in particular, the research program funded by the California Energy Commission, the utilities energy assessments, as well as um, case studies that lead to actual incentive programs, and then where it ends up, what the customer actually sees in terms of actual technology incentives or standards that actually affect the way that they conduct their lives. And then I'll provide you with a few examples of, um, of where that's really worked. So a couple of piece, pieces of legislation. In 1977, the Warren Alquist Act was passed. This was actually what created the California Energy Commission and was the genesis of Title 24, as we all know and love it now. Um, when it first started in 1978, it was the very first version. It was just actually a few pages. I actually have a copy of the original Title 24 standards. It's now a book, um, along with compliance manuals that many of you are probably aware of. But it was back in 1977 when that started with the California Energy Commission. Um, jumping to 1996 is when AB 1890 was passed. And that's the legislation that we're all very familiar with that um, restructured the electric industry in the state of California. But as part of that restructuring effort, the legislature, in their, in their wisdom, set aside some very, very important funds for energy efficiency. So one of the things they did was they set aside a pot of money, $62 million a year, for energy efficiency research in the public interest. And this responsibility was given to the California Energy Commission to administer. At the same time, they set aside funds, at that point in time, $228 million a year for the investor-owned utilities in California to offer incentive programs and other customer programs to help you and I, businesses, residential customers, industry, understand and use energy efficiency technologies. This is largely the pot of money that ends up as customer incentives as well as customer marketing and support programs. That has since that time, which was, uh, it was passed in 1996, 
but it was actually 1998 when it was, um, when it was actually initiated. And since that time, that energy efficiency bucket of money has grown to over a billion dollars a year. So in California, we have huge resources at our fingertips for energy efficiency. The responsibility, as you can see, for standards, for research, and for customer programs actually resided in three different places. While the Energy Commission had responsibility for both standards and research, it was two very different and discrete functions and divisions that carried those functions. So you end up having three very different activities conducted by three different groups of people, but that have really important and strong synergies. So I'm going to talk a bit more about um, what each of those functions are in a moment, but before I do that, I want to just talk through with you what we call technology diffusion curve. This is how we think, theoretically, it works. How we get from the point of a laboratory idea, something that's a technology or a protocol, a software product, a tool, all the way to where you have a lot of customers actually using this tool. So starting here, this is the research part. So you have basic research here. Yesterday we heard a lot about LED technology development. Um, DOE has, in fact, poured tons and tons of dollars into solid-state lighting research. They've been very instrumental in getting us to where we are today. But there, there has been, in fact, many, many years of basic research to get us there. Applied research, which is really the area that the California Energy Research Program, the PURE program, works in. And then what we call product engineering. So this is sort of where you take technology and have engineers help to work out the manufacturing processes and tools to get it actually into usable products. So this is the, the research end. And you have coming out of here in the research stream technologies that we hope end up affecting energy efficiency behaviors with people in California. So here is where the top of the bell curve is that you see commercial maturity, where technologies are actually understood, accepted, purchased, and used by customers. But before it gets there, there's a point that we call commercial introduction, where there's a very, very low adoption rate of these technologies, and in fact, where you get to an early adopter stage where we have something that is very fondly known as the chasm, or as um, Commissioner Rosenfeld calls it, the valley of death. So quite often, you get very promising technologies that never cross this chasm. And this is one of the roles that the utility programs, both the emerging technology programs as well as the energy efficiency programs, are intended to bridge. So the, the hope is that with the assessments done by the utilities, with the incentives offered by the utilities, you actually get across this chasm and get to a point of commercial maturity because when it gets here, there are no incentives for these products. The incentives are offered to get, you, to get these technologies across this chasm and with the hope of actual commercial maturity and widespread adoption. So that's the way that it's supposed to work. And then up here are what we call case initiatives, codes and standards 
um, initiatives that are intended to um, inform Title 24, Title 20, other standards that actually codify knowledge and understandings of energy efficiency into state requirements. And of course, the reality is a lot of this stuff happens earlier on, and some of this happens later, and some of it goes really back and forth. But theoretically, this is the way that we believe that this generally works. So on a simplified scale, this is where the public programs, the public purpose programs in California actually touch each other and where they need to touch each other in order to take things from point A to point B to point C. So starting here, this is the PEER program. As Dan mentioned, this is the program that I manage for energy efficiency at the California Energy Commission. It's funded at $62 million a year, about half of which is dedicated to um, doing energy efficiency related research, and that includes demand response related research. But it's applications oriented research in particular, meaning that it's not basic research, we're not, um, we're not studying lamp sources, et cetera. We're actually taking technology that's been developed and figuring out what the most efficient applications are for those technologies. Then you heard a lot about what industry is doing in terms of technology development. And by industry, I mean not only Philips, Lithonia, all of our lighting manufacturers, but really where the universities are doing research as well. And one of the things that really struck me both yesterday and today is that I'm seeing so much being done in the industry as well as the universities that are no longer what I would consider long-term or even mid-term research but really short-term research opportunities that can very, very directly feed into um, programs and actual customer products in a short period of time. And then also in the research arena is um, codes and standards research. So where we come up with Title 24 standards in California, Title 20 standards, those things don't just happen. So there's a lot of research behind what goes into that to determine what the right things are to go into the standards. And that also happens right here. So that is that's funded by the California Energy Commission through the PEER program. And it, all of this piece is sort of the research side on a public interest level that then feeds into this middle section. The middle section is where the investor-owned utilities come in. So what I showed you earlier, the $228 million that was dedicated to the utilities back in 1998, that's grown much larger than that since then. A portion of what that does is incentives, but another portion of what that does is actually fund what we call emerging technology assessments. So when there's a technology coming out of the research stream, how do we know that it's ready for a customer to adopt? How do we, how do we know that it has that reliability? Has it been tested at a larger scale out in the field? That's not what research does. Research does laboratory development, and it does initial prototype development. But there needs to be a broader scale field testing under certain climate conditions, under certain field conditions, to actually determine customer acceptability and customer readiness of these technologies. And that's part of what the investor-owned utilities do. We do 
and emerging technology assessments to actually determine the readiness to go into customer programs. The other thing the utilities do is they provide codes and standards case study support. So this is research that the Energy Commission is doing to feed into the standards, but there needs to be, again, um, additional studies done by the investor-owned utilities to determine for the tools that we have available, the compliance tools, et cetera, are these, um, are these proposed standards really viable for broad-scale um, integration into Title 20 and Title 24 standards? And then lastly, what people see is this. They see the Title 24 standards, which is our building energy standards in California, they see the Title 20 standards, the appliance standards that we all live with, and they see customer programs and incentives. So when a customer sees that they can get a, a, a $40 incentive on you know, an LED system or something, they don't know about all of this that went into that point in time where that incentive becomes available to them. All they see is that they have standards that they have to comply with, and they have incentives for products that, um, as PK said, the utility is obviously indirectly at least endorsed in terms of a product that will offer them cost-effective energy efficiency. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna make the, the statement that if you've gotten here, if you've gotten to the point where you're in a standard, or if you've gotten to the point where you have a product that gets a customer incentive, you've gotten a very long ways. You've gotten to be at a very, very good place, especially in California, where these two places are probably two of the very key indicators of the beginnings of commercialization of your technology. And there's obviously other market forces. There, there are products that get to Home Depot, there are design tools that get to architects that never, that never go through any of this. So, so clearly, this is not the only pathway, but this is a very important pathway because this is the pathway of the public purpose programs. And, and I'd really like, you know, as I've listened to some of the um, presentations in the last couple of days, I'm really hoping that the both industry and the university researchers will find within this opportunity to feed into some of these pieces at a higher level than, um, than they have perhaps in the past, um, most likely because it was not really clear what the opportunities were and what the intervention points were. But if you can get, if you can be part of these pieces, that's the channel to get into a standard at the end or a customer program. So delving into the peer program just a little bit deeper, um, one, of the, one of the clear focuses of peer is an applications research focus. So again, I, I said earlier that we're, it's not a program that does basic research. It builds upon basic research done by others but it looks for opportunities to apply different technologies, whether it's in fixtures, whether it's in classroom lighting situations, whether it's taking diagnostics that have been developed, putting them on board onto HVAC equipment, whether it's developing retro-commissioning protocols and procedures. This is not the basic science. It's, the, it's applying the science into the right tools and products to make them 
into useful products for you and I. One of the very um, important premises of PEER is partnering with industry. You heard a lot about that over the last couple of days. This is a very, very much a true um, premise at heart with PEER because from the outset it was understood that there were a lot of players in the research arena already and where could PEER play the most critical and the most important part, again, in bridging research to the next step. And in order to do that, um, we felt that it was really important to build those industry alliances to bring that perspective into the research program design as well as to integrate it into the research product uh, integration to the customer. So one of the examples of that, Bruce was here, Bruce Pelton was here yesterday talking about the California Lighting Technology Center. We in fact started that center with Dr. Semenovich um, in Northern California, we now have at Southern California Edison the Southern California Lighting Technology Center, which is also a sister agency to that effort. But what it is is a applications-focused lighting technology development effort. It has a board comprised of industry, meaning specific lighting manufacturers, sitting at the same table as policymakers and investor-owned utilities. So you have at the table the people that have a vested interest in these technologies, the people that are setting policies and standards relating to these technologies, and then the folks that are actually developing the incentive programs to get those technologies into the hands of the customer. And that's actually a very um, common theme amongst a lot of what the California Energy Commission's research program does. We've also, with the peer program, tried to integrate a lot of industry-related research because especially in the past, and I would say the past is even as recently as five to 10 years ago, much of the industry re research related to energy efficiency was what I would call very proprietary. There was a lot of competition between uh, manufacturers and a lot of concern about sharing um, developments that they were making on their research sides and their research teams. But again, I'm seeing a lot more research coming out of industry now that is what I would consider much more in the gray area of potentially public interest related research. So peer focuses purely on public interest related research. It needs to be research that is, um, has widespread benefits and is in the public domain and has to be um, benefits across a particular industry. So I think now what we used to do is try to bring in a lot of the industry research as it was um, put into the public domain. I think there could be a lot more opportunity now at the front end of integrating a lot of that industry research with the public industry, public interest research so that we can couple them earlier on. The other thing that the peer program does is develop research related to codes and standards. And this, um, this may sound um, like it should be an obvious connection to you, but in fact, it, it, it was a long time coming. There were several drivers, there are several drivers that influenced the research um, focus in the peer program for, related to California standards. And those drivers include um, what the peer program does independently related to technology research, 
what we have found um, in terms of comments that have come back from prior cycles of um, Title 24 as far as things that are working and things that haven't worked. And then when I say feedback from the third floor, what I mean by this is that at the California Energy Commission, the research is done by a group of people on the second floor. The standards are developed by a group of people on the third floor. So you actually only have one floor that separates these two very important functions. And in fact, it's come to a point where those two entities are communicating a great deal. So you get the standard setting body coming to the research body on a very consistent and regular basis, feeding to them what knowledge developments they need from the research stream and having that research stream feedback to inform what needs to be in the next version of Title 24. And then there are studies done on compliance and enforcement issues um, that also feed into how those standards research um, areas are identified. And then in the middle area, in terms of the investor-owned utilities, we do two things. We do emerging technology assessments. So PEER will come out with products from their research stream, and they will be prototype products. And the emerging technology program will do some additional lab testing of these products under certain conditions. They'll do performance validation under specific field conditions, real-life operational situations. They'll do parametric computer runs to actually simulate a lot broader applications that PEER couldn't do under a limited research agenda. They'll identify market barriers, determine viability as customer programs, figure out where customer acceptability issues may be, um, may be a barrier. And they do all of those things prior to those prototypes ever reaching a customer program. The Emerging Technology Program is coupled side by side with the Codes and Standards Program at the Investor-Owned Utilities, and they do case studies to validate and strengthen the codes and standards that the California Energy Commission is looking at adopting. In addition, the Codes and Standards uh, Group also does compliance enhancement in terms of employing compli improving compliance levels, doing training and process improvements with local governments and then supporting the adoption of REACH codes in coordination with the California Energy Commission. So at the end, what the customer sees is this. They only see, sorry, they only see um, the standards that we end up with as well as the incentives that they get to take part in. The standards are updated every three years. There's a lot of behind the scenes work that's done at the Energy Commission, at the utilities before it ever gets there. Um, the investor-owned utilities provide a lot of services to promote the code's understanding and compliance. There's statewide coordination between all of the utilities in California to determine incentives for, emerging, uh, for energy efficiency technologies. There's also technical support services, and then the customer sees the, sees the technology and begins to understand the opportunity to leverage some of these things, both um, price responsive and emergency responsive demand response technologies in addition to energy efficiency technologies. So this is what I'm calling a perfect storm. 
Um, and if you're, in, if you're in this field, then you spend a lot more time worrying about the things that aren't working right than the things that actually are. But in fact, if you step back, there really is a lot that's working well right now. So in terms of the codes and standards area, again, the investor-owned utilities and the California Energy Commission meet on a quarterly basis. They share their latest um, codes and standards initiative findings, and they sit together at the table to determine what the next level of Title 24 standards should include. And in terms of the emerging technology portion of it, they also meet quarterly. This includes the investor-owned utilities as well as the Energy Commission and emerging technology opportunities are vetted at that table and statewide leveraging opportunities are identified and then fed into utility program incentives. So I'm going to share very briefly with you three quick examples. Um, these are two hardware types of technologies and PEER really does not focus simply on hardware technologies. The California Energy Commission's PEER program focuses on hardware, software, protocols, specifications, um, design tools. So th this is just, again, the hardware portion, but these are very specific technologies that were developed under the PEER program. Bi-level lighting um, for stairways, um, there was uh, demand-controlled ventilation exhaust hoods um, that were developed um, a couple of years ago. They were actually um, fed into the Investor-Owned Utilities Emerging Technologies Program, who then performed assessments on these technologies. And these technologies are all now being offered as customer incentive technologies through the utilities programs. A second example is on the cool roof side. I mentioned the um, codes and standards re related research. Peer developed some um, duct and attic models to model interactions between different roof and attic elements, um, considering the different thermal effects in the interactions. Um, they tested different roof pigment compositions with industry participation. The investor-owned utilities then did some case studies to determine the viability through computer simulations of applying this under different field conditions and that now fed into the California Energy Commission going back and developing Title 24 standards that in fact require certain cool roof inclusions in all of their new buildings. And then um, a last example on the demand response side, programmable communicating thermostats. This is a technology that's going to become ever more important in our world of smart uh, meters. So Peer developed and tested the functionality of these PCTs. The investor-owned utilities picked that up and further tested and evaluated the protocols and applications under different scenarios. And this is a technology that we believe is going to end up having a strong role in connectivity between the utility and the customer. So conclusions that we developed a lot of programs under different pieces of enabling legislation. Different people had different responsibilities, but over time, um, some of it designed, some of it not so much so, but over time through the hard work and vision of a lot of people, 
think a lot of California's public purpose programs are now actually converging and offering the opportunity to leverage upon each other to actually get to the point of moving together as a single train in California, moving from laboratory development um, in energy efficiency all the way to something that a customer sees. Thank you. All your presentations showed that when we can integrate across technical systems or when we can integrate across cost and value to uh, get to benefits or when we can integrate ac across organizations, we can dramatically enhance uh, the energy efficiency of, of a building or portfolio of buildings. In my own work, I found that to be the same. However, it is incredibly difficult, I found, to scale these integrated approaches because you just need one weak link to break on the technical side or the organizational side and things fall apart. So what strategies have you found to be able to scale these integrated solutions across just a few organizations? I, I think it's a very good point that I think if so kind of where I got to in the end of the remarks, I think the, again, I think we have a, a deep and talented sort of set of technologies and people who know how to take an individual building and with a lot of care and feeding get it done right. I think, frankly, the, the, some of the research that we are starting and some of the significant proposals that a sort of collaborative group is underway right now is to really understand how you develop scalable tools so that each building does not become unique. I mean, it's those of you who do sort of front-end building simulation work know that, that, you know, that's a very deep and learned process and the ability to take what you learn on one building and translate it to another isn't, isn't where it needs to be. So I think maybe we're just in violent agreement here. It's, it's the development of tools that allow us to do that integration in a repeatable fashion without having to relearn every time is, is still science and technology that's in its infancy. I think that, that um, doing this for 30 years and being responsible for over a billion square feet of energy audits as I have, uh, we have an amazing database from clean rooms to bathrooms, you know, and everything in between. So we know exactly what the metrics are for watts per square foot, BTUs per square foot, CFM per person, uh, every single thing you can imagine across the various uh, uh, SIC codes, if you will. Uh, I think that if we all put our minds together, companies like us, and said, you know, what information do you have? What are your metrics for a clean room or for a lab or for a manufacturing plant or get down to specific manufacturing from, you know, plastics versus food industry? You'd find that there's a lot of information out there. It's just not shared very easily because we compete with other people on that information. This is John Geis from Altaterra Research, and I have a question for the whole panel. First, I wanted to ask PK if you could explain and expand a little bit on the idea of the uh, human brain uh, as a control uh, mechanism. And then I wanted to ask the other speakers to, to, see, to comment on it if you're seeing the same thing. Well, I'll give you one example. I, um, I do a lot of work in, in very large commercial buildings where I'm talking to um, the financial officer who's saying, you know, show me how I can and reduce my bill by 10 or 15 percent, and I'm dealing with the guy sitting in the basement in front of a, a carrier building automation system whose responsibility it is to run the building and, and prevent uh, major catastrophes from happening. Somewhere between that person and, and the financial officer is that 10 percent. The guy in the basement, 
He's looking at hundreds of points, trying to monitor the, the systems, make sure that everything is running, all, all the occupants are happy, and the chiller doesn't fail. Um, and, and, the C, and, and, the, and the chief financial officer is saying, yeah, but we gave you this wonderful piece of equipment that has all the tools in it to save you that 10%. Why aren't you saving me that 10%? And the answer is the human brain, that one person wants a result based purely on financial, and another person wants a result purely based on people not complaining that things are going wrong. And if there was a bridge between the two, an energy engineer that sat down and said, let's bridge that gap. Let's take your brain that, that is doing this, but let's expand a little bit to looking at these algorithms or looking at the optimization of, of temperatures and the enthalpies and so on and so forth. Let's get you up to that, and let's get the, the people at the top who are saying, we can't afford to have any more money spent. We've already spent all our money on, on this equipment and this technology to say you need that middle person to bridge the two gaps, to create a brain that eventually the, the building oper operations guy can take over. That's 10% right there. We just don't see it happening enough. Um, I agree with that. And in, in the research area, what we have found is a key driver, especially for residential consumers, is not energy efficiency. It's different things that they care about, like comfort, like health, et cetera. So being able to develop the metrics or the channels that help them understand how energy efficiency actually is a connector to higher health situations, whether it's with demand-controlled ventilation or actual comfort situations, not being able to do that translation is what is the barrier to keeping a lot of people from adopting energy efficiency. Yeah, and I guess the other thing I would add is maybe go back to a comment I made earlier today, which is do, doing what PK is talking about and having, you know, sort of all constituents in the issue sort of at the table deciding what, what is the design, what are the optimum trade-offs. Uh, but ultimately, I think we need to get to a place where sort of the care and feeding of buildings is not dependent on a high-touch, high-talent engineering staff in, in all cases. And so uh, part of what we need to do is to be able to design these sort of flexible systems, design processes, but then ultimately we have to have buildings that are sufficient and capable enough of maintaining and monitoring themselves. Sure, you can decide how to trade off over time. You know, somebody decides that I want my building to be more of this or less of that. But in general, the day-to-day -day control and operation of the building has to get to a place where we're not relying on the kind of expertise that's necessary to get these optimum buildings out and in place today. Nick Hodson this morning mentioned that his well uh, had a bad pump. Is there energy associated with the delivery of water and then the, the, the subsequent waste treatment of that water that's significant? Uh, is conservation of water part of the conservation of energy on a general basis? Uh, sort of two answers to the question. I think, I think at the residential side, the, the answer is yes, but, but not so much compared to some other things. So I would, as an example, the energy required to heat water in a home is significantly higher than the energy associated with any other water associated in the home. That's the energy side of the equation. There is concomitant with all of the discussion over the last two days. You know, some people have remarked on this a couple of times. You know, focusing just on energy is going to give us, in the best possible world, a highly efficient energy world without enough water to go around. So we can't have a conversation that's just about energy, especially as it relates to the generation side of the problem. So this is a sore spot for me. I think that there are huge, huge savings that we could be driving in cold water conservation. 
um, and energy savings associated with that that we're not um, taking advantage of right now. There's a proceeding with the CPUC ongoing right now to try to develop the right metrics to understand what the energy savings are associated with cold water savings. They haven't reached a conclusion. Um, but in the meantime, I think that if we can figure out what the right metrics are and if we can develop the right utility programs to incent that to happen, we could be driving a lot, lot more energy savings related to cold water conservation than we're doing. So I'm hoping something does change within the very short term. Let's thank the panel. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.